Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's show, we speak with Elaine Ann, founder and director at Kaiser Innovation, a consultancy that helps companies research, strategize, and design new product or service innovations for the China market. Elaine and her colleagues will step in as the fractional chief experience officer to help funded tech startups with their product market fit, customer discovery, and customer validation. Elaine is also the author of the book, Experience Innovation, in which she details a seven-step innovation methodology to guide foreign companies in creating products and services that translate well in the China market. We discuss the differences between UI, UX, and CX, how to know when you've achieved product market fit in China, defining the fractional C-suite executive role and function, and why it is vitally important to build the right local team when expanding to China. Enjoy. In China, the people who own cars are relatively well off. The people who own BMWs, most likely, they don't drive it themselves. It's actually a a driver. They hire a driver to drive them everywhere, right? So now, who is the end user? Is it the person who buys the car or the person who drives the car? And the person who drives the car might have grown up from like a sub suburb village area. So the whole context changes, right? When when you're in such a different market. Home to over four billion people, the Asia Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under thirty population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early stage tech companies enter the Asia Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to the negotiation brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Elaine, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Well, thanks, Todd, for inviting. As we usually do, how about a quick introduction of yourself and the work that you're doing? Sure. My name is Elaine Anne. Anne is my last name, and、um, I grew up from Hong Kong. <laughs> and in the '90s, I spent 12 years in the U.S. I went to the U.S. to study at Carnegie Mellon, and then I worked in the U.S. in the first wave of internet companies like、uh, Razorfish, and also、uh, worked at like Philips Design on like Internet of Things <laughs> back then in the '90s. Uh, and then af- after the dot com bust, right? I went back to Hong Kong. Then I spent 18 years in Hong Kong, and it wasn't until last year I came back to North America. And now I'm in Vancouver, Canada. So in the t- 18 years that I'm in Hong Kong, I started my own company called Kaiser Innovation, and the focus is to help a lot of Western tech companies strategize and understand the China market. And right now、uh, in Canada, I also started another company, which is focused on helping tech startups do almost exactly what we help all those multinationals do, but in a much more succinct way and f- much faster. Because because we're we're used to how China market is v- really fast, right? And we help them with、uh, product market fit, customer validation, customer discovery, etc., and user experience. That's right. I am one of the directors of Founder Institute as well as the host of this podcast, at Founder Institute Western Canada, and、uh, we had you on, and、uh, you've you've been an amazing mentor, and doing lots and lots of sessions and offers hours and mentoring for a lot of the startups that go through there as well. So,、uh, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. Yes. So, how about、uh, a brief description of your time、uh, working in APAC, working with APAC? Really,、mm. you know, what did your work focus on? Years that you were there, maybe you know, after you came across the times that you've gone back, some of that stuff. What are some of the highlights of your time? Yeah. So, I went back to Hong Kong,、uh, year two thousand two, right, and then started my company. And the reason why I started my company is because I was in the User experience industry in the U.S. for almost twelve years, and when my bank went back, honestly, back in two thousand two, a lot of companies didn't understand what I did because <laughs> it wasn't yet digital transformation until maybe late after two thousand and ten or even two thousand and fifteen. I want to have you. 
introduce kind of the the user experience space. But I think a great place to start is to separate UI, UX, CX. Could you start? Could you help us understand the differences there, just for everybody, so we're all on the same page before we really get into it? Yes. So when we say UX, the full word is actually user experience. However, I find that uh, many different many different people have many different definitions of what it is. Our large clients, like multinational clients, like their definition is pretty on the same page. So in a, in a large company like even Google, right, there are in the user experience team, it's very specialized. There are people who do user research and do user testing, and they might never do design, okay? And there are interaction designers who design the flow of the product, the usability of the product, and there are visual UI designers, and sometimes even front-end developers that bridge the gap between the design and the programming part, okay? So all these roles, there could be four to five different roles, and they're all under the UX umbrella. And even the, sometimes the senior roles could be a UX strategy role, okay? But of course, usually tech startups don't have that luxury to hire five different people to do UX, right? So that's why I think sometimes the terminologies are confusing. Uh, and we see a lot of job descriptions saying UX slash UI, right? But in reality... I think that's true for uh, all different types of industries, right? Like the bigger the company, the more specialized the roles, right? And then for the China market, what we focus on is actually user experience strategy and user research and sometimes user testing. We actually never really do um, the design part because our clients, they have huge teams, right? They have a few hundred designers or researchers, what they need us for is they need to understand the differences in the China market and how that would impact their product. It could either be adjusting their product or maybe in some instances, they just come with an open mind or open question and just to discover what are their pain points and needs in a particular area that they might want to venture into. And so your work because I want to, I want to get this right. What is, what is your specialty? Which one are you really deep diving into? Um, I would say uh, product market fit. If 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 it's a textile language, really, uh, what we do in in our industry. We, we actually do uh, what we call ethnography. We actually follow people. We shadow people. We go to their homes. I've been to a lot of Chinese people's homes in China, like all different provinces and cities. And our clients would fly over, right? They would fly over with a team, we'll go to their homes, we'll understand their context of use, like what their homes are like, or what their offices are like, or what the real retail stores are like. And then out of that out of that exercise, uh, interviewing a lot of people, we'll, we'll find out if there's an opportunity there or if, if our client has to adjust their business. So I would say it is customer discovery and customer validation. Interesting. Uh, from a broad level um, for, let's say, let's call it your vertical, okay? Your, okay. your industry, your space. Uh, mm. What are the key things that people such as yourself, experts such as yourself who work in the space, what are you broadly trying to accomplish with your customers? For example, we worked with uh, some companies that are home appliances, right? So they, they sell refrigerators, basically. So the way refrigerators are designed in the West, you have ice dispenser on the front of the door, right? Hmm. Mm-hmm. This really relates to lifestyle, right? Mm-hmm. So if you try to deep dive into Chinese people's lifestyle, you notice that a lot of Chinese people don't like drinking ice water. If you've dined with Chinese people, um, a lot of them would order hot water or warm water, right? There's a um, there's a belief that cold water in your in your system is bad for you. It's bad for your stomach, bad for your digestion, things like that. Yeah. So so on the surface, it might be you know just uh, there's a belief, but when you dig deeper, and that here's where we come in, right? Because I, I grew up in Hong Kong. I, I grew up bilingual. Uh, and also the worldview, because I spent 12 years in the U.S. and I grew up in the Chinese family. I think I see both sides because I, you know, I would go to see Chinese doctors as well as Western doctors and eat all like different cuisines as well. So if you understand the Chinese concept of health, in fact, traditional Chinese concept of health is 
you know, there's a concept of chi, you know, as an energy, and there's the concept of meridian systems, right? And in, in, in the body, right? And the reason why people don't like to drink cold water is because in the Chinese traditional medicine, chi, you know, runs throughout your body and uh, cold water, it's like putting ice water in an engine, right? It's going to slow down your digestion and uh, not very good for your body, right? And this actually permutates everything. Like there'll be phenomena that I think our Western friends would find really strange. Like why do people like to go for foot massage <laughs> and buy buy a foot massage chair for, that, that, that is the price of a car, right? And massages in, in Asia is like really popular, right? That's why there are companies like Awesome uh, that they specialize in massage chairs, right? And I've been, uh, Osim is also a client previously, and they had the reverse problem, right? When we were training their uh, user experience team, I was trying to convince them, and they're Singaporeans, right? I was trying to convince them to tell them, hey, you know what? Your product is not going to work for North American market. And they didn't believe it, right? (laughs) They actually have, uh, they sell their massage chairs at Brookstone, which is like uh, the sales channel in the U.S., but you know, most of my Western friends, they would rather go for a hike instead of buying this huge massage chair in their homes. And that makes you hurt, right? Because the concept of health is different. Yeah, so that's where we do the cross-cultural translation. Yeah, in, in many different lifestyle like sectors, right? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. I was almost thinking that you're doing a little bit, I mean, not to compare what a podcast can do but you know kind of similar intent where we're also trying to kind of bridge that cultural gap um in a, in yeah. a way of just the through just through exploration but that's fascinating and i know that yeah i mean massages are incredibly popular there you know so is you know blind massage uh cupping acupuncture <laughs> you know everywhere hot stones all this stuff i mean the ways that they you know are are taking toxins out of your body or out of your skin or this and that mm-hmm. the taking the uh bone to the bottom of your foot and uh-huh. all the pressure points that that's that was probably the most painful thing i've ever done in my life um because <laughs> i've never had a baby so that was unbelievably painful and they are um they, they really believe that that is uh, an amazing release of pent-up chi and and kind of like you know all these mm-hmm. benefits that come with it uh and i'm thinking it just hurts um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a totally different concept of health. I mean, we have uh, Western clients with medical devices, right? And I'm always like, well, have you ever looked into the Chinese concept of health? Mm. Because that's, it's huge, right? When when they have a different concept. And, and even for food, right? So we have done uh, plant-based uh, meat projects mm. for, you know, uh, companies and like, how do people view food, right? You know, uh, and even like the movement of having food... Uh, <laughs> like protein that's from worms, you know, mm-hmm. uh, things like that, right? Like how do people view it differently and in different markets? It's quite interesting. Right. So in, in the work that you do when you're dealing with the customers, can you explain a little bit about, you know, even the beginning? Because it's, you know, this isn't a traditional uh, business working process because you have i i'm i'm guessing and i'm maybe leading this question a little bit but i'm guessing there's a lot of upfront kind of education that that begins the entire working relationship that you now have to do in helping some of your com- companies and your in the brands and what they want to do with an understanding of, it's like a china 101 yes i think the biggest challenge is sometimes our clients don't know what they don't know right so how do you tell them what they don't know? Like they, they don't even know that, that right? Mm-hmm. The approach that we've taken previously is uh, actually a lot of our clients actually do fly to China pre- previously, okay, before COVID. Mm. So once they land in a different country and then uh, you experience the, the place for like five to 10 days, you notice all these nuances, right? But I think it's harder if they've never been. They've never been to China. We have tons of clients who come over with just a credit card. <laughs> and we're like, hey, you know what? Sometimes you can't even get cash, right? <laughs> like some restaurants don't take don't take credit cards. And people assume that you can go everywhere with Google Map. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, you can't because there's no Google Map, right? 
I mean, at least you um, unless you read Chinese with like Gota, right? At least maps like the, the China version of it or Baidu map, like you, you kind of like blind and deaf at the same time. And the biggest uh, surprise for them is like you have to use VPN because mm. a lot of them, they come over and we ha- always have to warn them, hey, you have to you know, like download all the apps that you want before you come over because you might not be able to access it. <laughs> And sometimes they they learn right the second time they know, right, 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 right. And you know, just in helping you know companies find that product market fit um, and and the advice, maybe first explaining you know a, a little bit more of at a at a deep level the concept as far as what your you under your understanding as an expert is what is product market fit what does that look like and maybe how do we know and are able to measure when we've achieved product market fit just generally speaking and then if you don't mind help us understand how that concept is approached in china versus the west i i think when we're growing up from a certain culture sometimes you don't see how things are different in another culture. I'll, I'll give you a solid example. Vacuum cleaners, okay? <laughs> so we have a client who do vacuum cleaners. And in the US, people's houses are mostly three stories, right? And then it's mostly the wife who takes care of vacuum cleaning, uh, maybe sometimes the husband, but much less in in Asia, like especially in China. I mean, uh, domestic helpers are really cheap, right? And especially even in Hong Kong, right? Everybody has a, has a quotation made, <laughs> um, a, a housekeeper, so to speak. An IE. IE, right, in China. Yeah. So the design of the vacuum cleaner in the US, especially people's size are bigger, right? In Asia, most women are 100 some pounds, 110, mm-hmm. 120 pounds. Um, so the ergonomics is completely different. The taste is different. Like what people think is good looking or not good looking, even colors and functions are different. The size of the homes are different. And the most uh, different thing is in the US, I think there's a lot of carpeted uh, homes. Right. In China is all hardwood floors. And the biggest difference is like, uh, I think average vacuum cleaners, maybe two, three hundred dollars US. Right. And then in China, you can hire a several mates, you know, which would not even be that price. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think without understanding how the market is different, then you wouldn't be able to design something that fits the market. Right. And even for things like cars, for example, in in the U.S., I think um, middle class families, everybody drives, right? Because it's hard to get to anywhere. Mm -hmm. In China, the people who own cars are relatively well off. The people who own BMWs, most likely they don't drive it themselves. (laughs) It's actually a, a driver. They hire a driver to drive them everywhere, right? So now who is the end user? Is it the person who buys the car or the person who drives the car? And the person who drives the car might have grown up from like a suburb village area, right? So the whole context changes, right? When when you're in such a different market. Um, So I think the best way is for our clients to come over, to to immerse themselves for a a week or two, and then be open-minded to listen to what end users have to say. Uh, and some, some, in some cases, they even bring prototypes over. We'll test it uh, with them, with the end users in China. And, you know, and, then, and then if they're open-minded enough, we'll help them brainstorm new solutions, right? Or adjusted solutions to, to their original product. Mm-hmm. You're, you're taking them over there and they are perhaps with, they're going with the intent of seeing how well uh, their current product fits. Your, uh, your intent is, is likely because you already know what's going to happen is that your intent is to see how open their mind is going to be by the time they get back to reinventing their product altogether. Uh, because, yeah. you know, you're there, they're, they're saying, you know, I want to take my product to China and you're saying, great, 
how are we going to go about like you need to help them find a new product market fit it's it's not it's not really about how to take the product there it's it's how to find a new product market fit once we found that then we'll hopefully have some data that will help us you know, uh, run the next experiment, which is, um, how to, uh, sell and who to sell to and at what price and what platform and that, but, but refinding product market fit is essentially the most important thing that, that anyone probably needs to do first. Oh, oh yeah, definitely. Otherwise there'll be, uh, assuming that, oh, just doing some translation would work. But I think most of the time, <laughs> that's not the case, really. And beyond the product, I think uh, I think one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of companies make is not building the right team locally. Like if you reverse the psychology and say, okay, if a Chinese company wants to go to the U.S. and they send Chinese people who don't speak English, <laughs> you know, and set up an office in California, how well is that going to work, right? Because their whole mindset is different. For example, in China, if, if you're used to uh, China apps and maybe WeChat, right? The whole Chinese concept, everything is holistic and everything connects with everything else. So in WeChat, it's like 30 apps in one, right? This will never work in the US. Uber just does Uber and PayPal just does PayPal. Maybe <laughs> skeptical. It's not connected. Yeah. Not connected. However, in China, you open up a damping, right? Which is like a, a Yelp, right? You you select the restaurant. Right there, you can click for a taxi and you can also see a map, right? Hmm. And then you can also pay. So it's all interconnected. And I think it has to do with the, the sociology of the culture. Like everything is guanxi, right? <laughs> everything is connected. Like companies are both competitors and collaborators at the same time, which is kind of weird for Western concept, I think. Do you think that North American companies, North American brand, brand owners, brand decision makers, have they become better? Do they do they know more now? I mean, is my podcast having an effect? Are we are they are they do they know more now? Is it is your job getting easier I would say some of the very large companies that have been around in China for a long time, maybe 20, 30 years, they've learned they've learned their lessons, I would say. Mm. Like we have a we had a medical client, they've been in China for 10 years. And after 10 years, they finally realized, oh wow, we actually need to cut all the features in half and charge at a much lower price. And then it sold really well. Hmm. Right. But a lot of brands coming to China, they're like, oh, no, we're at the top of the game. Like we're like top notch. We we're not going to lower price. That's going to affect our branding. But China is a very different market. It's like almost a fortune at the bottom of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's why Pingdodo works really well in China. Right. Because most of Chinese people are maybe in the third to fourth tier cities. The cities that Western companies come to even visit is only like Beijing and Shanghai, maybe, and Guangzhou, Shenzhen, like maybe maximum. Mm -hmm. Like most of them don't even go to the second or third tier cities to see what what's different, right? But I do think Western companies have have a competitive edge in certain areas, like certain technological areas. And a lot of Chinese consumers also look up to some Western brands, um, especially with baby products or things that you put in your skin and things that you eat, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's a huge distrust in certain products like lo locally made, right? So, I mean, I, th I think it's a huge market and, and China moves so fast, right? It's five times the pace <laughs> than in the US. Like when US companies come over, the research part takes a few months, right? In China, the whole development cycle is in one month. Mm. So if you take that time to develop for a China market and you don't build the right team in China, like how, how are you going to catch up to the local competitors, right? Although there may be some of them might not put so much R&D effort, but they move very fast and they refine things very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. When you're helping a company find product market fit, say a company that is coming to America and 
you know, you're, you're working with them versus a company that's going to, to China. Is there strategies? Is there tools? Are there platforms, even social medias or, you know, the tests and experiments? Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're using and how you're, how you're helping them figure out that data? And then once they get the data, how to actually understand what it says? Okay, so we do help Western tech companies in China, but then for companies coming to North America, we mostly help tech startups. We don't help uh, mainland Chinese large companies over here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a huge cultural difference, work cultural difference (laughs) Mm -hmm. between the two. And it's and it's funny because, like, for example, our Western clients, uh, even like companies like Google, Airbnb, when they come over, like a whole team of like 10, 15 people comes over. Right. And then they all come over at different times. It's not one single flight because everybody has their own schedule. (laughs) Uh, Chinese people never travel that way. Mm. If you're from the same company, if Huawei comes over, I don't think they're going to come in 18 different flights, right? So it's collectivism versus like individualism thing. Hmm. And coming back to your question, yeah, so we we don't really help mainland Chinese companies come to US right. at all. We we help tech startups, um, especially now in Canada, the startup visa program, we're helping a lot of Hong Kong tech uh, founders come over here to Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but then for them, we actually use the same methodologies. We'll uh, help them validate their business model, help the tech startups validate the mis- business model in North America. Uh, be- because of COVID, we can't really go out to users' homes or offices. So we, we, we do online interviews, um, one-on-one interviews. The client, uh, the tech startups uh, founders are in the call we will come up with a set of questions together with them. So all the interviews will be consistent. And actually nine out of 10 times, the original business model is not what the market needs either, right? Uh, so af- after like the 20th interview, we we actually see, oh, well, actually your business model should switch this way, tweak that way, or this is actually a better way to do this. And because there is this evidence from the market, from the end users, their business plan and pitch is much stronger, right? When they when they pitch to investors over over in North America. Who do you think is more easy to work with, more more malleable, more open to understanding they don't know what they don't know kind of thing? I think it depends on the company. Um, it's it's not it's not like it's not culturally based yeah yeah but but i would say the companies the founders coming from hong kong most of them are quite open-minded because they're coming to a new place right they're open to learning Mm. but i would say in terms of ability to execute of course the multinational companies are way better at executing uh, what they discover, as long as the multinational companies, they find the right team to do that. Because I've seen many cases where the decision making is still in the US, right? They, they'll do this, you know, mm. uh, customer discovery or product market fit. However, they'll go back to the US to do the design, which I think is the wrong strategy. Mm. They should actually first build a local team we could also help them do that and find the right people because otherwise what whatever the research they come up with might not be able to it be implemented <laughs> hmm. it'll get lost some somehow or be interpreted in in the wrong way i would say how have the best practices around finding proper product market fit ui you know determining and designing ui ux cx um how how has that because i know tech has had a a tremendous impact on not only how it's done because they've done it at speed and at scale but also the tools and the the technology to be able to do it can you talk a little bit about how you know, the work that you do um, and your professional landscape, how has that evolved over the last 10 years or so? 
I guess, you know, now that we have big data, um, I know Chinese companies um, use a lot of data because they have a lot more data, right? It's like 1.3 billion people data and people are not really concerned about privacy at all mm. in China compared to the U.S., yeah, that that companies uh, use a lot of data to to look at patterns and all that, but but I would argue, on the other hand, that uh, sometimes having data might not mean you can read insights. Yeah, those are two different things, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes to the, the the work we do, um, because we actually meet a lot of real people, dig into the lives, follow them, shadow them. We actually need to read in between the lines of like what what are the opportunities. Sometimes machine can't can read that, right? So I, yeah, I, w- I would say maybe big data analytics and all that would probably help, right? Identify things faster. Uh, for example, what one company like T- Tencent has actually has a survey that you can get feedback back within twenty four hours. Wow, that's pretty fast, right? I mean, China is amazing in terms of scale and speed. You know, you would think if it's large, it's probably slow, right? But it's not when it's top-down thinking, right? So sometimes they can implement something very, very fast. Uh, and, and even uh, supermarkets like Hema, Alibaba has this uh, Hema uh, supermarket where you basically can use your mobile phone, go in, pick up some stuff, scan the code, pay right on your phone and walk out, right? You don't have to line up at all. And of course, there are all these surveillance cameras scanning you. So, so sometimes what works in China might not work somewhere else just because it's a different landscape, right? And consumers are, are probably not going to be comfortable in the U.S. being scanned and surveillanced. <laughs> uh, but people in China are okay. So yeah, so it's apples and oranges sometimes. Your book, Experience Innovation, Designing and Strategizing for the Next Trillion Dollar Market in China. Uh, There's a lot of amazing uh, stuff in here. Uh, Definitely a read for anybody in our audience. Um, There's so much, so many things I wanted to ask about this. One of them was, and and I don't know, I don't want you to give away the secret sauce here by asking this, but you you talk about a seven step methodology that teaches businesses how to develop products and services that can cross those cultural barriers between the East and the West. Could you talk a little bit about that methodology? Yes, sure. Actually, is quite. It's a similar methodology that we help multinationals like Google, Airbnb with, mm-hmm. but at a much accelerated rate for 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 the China market. And because China moves very fast, like it's like five times faster, that's why I think it will also work for tech startups. Because tech startups don't have three months to do like research, right? You don't have three months to do product market fit. You probably need to build your product in three months. And also, I think if tech if tech startups focus on a niche and also take into consideration all the cultural differences, because I think very large companies sometimes they cannot do that. Uh, let's take the, the example of a fridge, right? So a multinational company in home appliances might not be able to cater so specifically to a market to say. For example, make a kimchi fridge for Korea, Korean market, right? Like they can't be so specific because they need to come up with products that work all over the globe, right? But smaller companies like mid to small size companies uh, might be able to. And if you look at even just in the food category, the way Chinese people eat, and it's a huge market, right? Like when we did our a lot of research in China, we went to a lot of homes and you notice in South China that many people have two fridges at home. And Todd, I don't know if you've noticed what, with the time you've been there. <laughs> um, I definitely have. Okay, two people, two fridges, especially in South China, because one fridge is for fresh food and the other fridge is for all the soup materials, you know, like goji berries and and even like expensive food like abalone and sea cucumber and all that right and some of them even requested locks for the fridge so the whole lifestyle and diet is different that i think big companies can't 
really address that. It's only smaller companies who will be able to, and, and it's a gold mine as I see it, that hasn't been tapped into. Because I see a, a lot of uh, the Chinese companies, uh, tech companies, um, are very good at emulating uh, Western tech, right? Especially in the early days. I don't think I've seen really culturally based um, innovation yet, especially we were talking about concept of health, concept of food is different, like even concept of beauty is different. Different, right? We've worked with PNG previously, and if you talk to Chinese women, they want to be white, right? <laughs> Which mm-hmm. is completely different from like if you talk to people in the in North America or Europe, like getting a tan is more more like a a sign of you're healthy and you have time to go outdoors, right? Mm-hmm. But in in Chinese concept, like be, having dark skin is actually means that you 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 work outside doing hard physical labor that's why you're dark Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's very different interpretations and concept right which would translate you know into how you might design some of your marketing uh and and your graphics and you know no white person should should have any inflated ego over the fact that you know they're they're trying to look white it's it's more that they're um trying to look less uh sun-kissed uh, than uh, than others because of the you know um, that 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 understanding that um, the darker your skin uh, the more you work outdoors um, therefore you're less affluent than your your neighbor who has um, more of the uh, you know untouched uh, by the sun skin. Oh, I have. Uh, have you seen this fa- face kini? No, like a bikini <laughs> for the face. <laughs> Yeah, so basically, women in uh, in certain parts of China, like Qingdao or something, they would wear a swimsuit with a face mask that hides their all the skin on their face, so they won't get a tan mm-hmm. on their face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which which kind of might be really funny, right? Like for yeah, but you know that's another cultural thing. Not only is that okay, yes, to us it would be kind of haha funny funny, but you don't see. Chinese people in China, when somebody is wearing this, stop, look, mention, gawk, you know, <laughs> comment. It's 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 not like that. You there's there's no embarrassment in wearing something like that there at all. They would they don't even think twice about it. Yeah, actually, even even in Hong Kong, right? You know, some of my friends when they go hike, you know, they'll bring an umbrella and even like wear long sleeve. Yeah, <laughs> you know, to cover all their skin, especially women, right? It's because they don't want to get half tanned on on their on their arm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not preventing yeah, skin so- cancer either. It, not not most of the time. It it is really just uh, the preference to have lighter skin versus darker skin, just uh, because of a of a wealthier perception. Yes, and and maybe also because uh, Asian women look uh, are tinier, like in terms of height. So if you're dark, you look even smaller, right? Mm. <laughs> you know, there there are all all different reasons why people do that. But I'm just saying that I I, I mean I love this type of work because there is sometimes no right or wrong. Mm-hmm. You go to very different cultures and you get super shocked <laughs> at how people think what is good or bad, uh, and and it really changes your perception of things. Oh, I, I have one more story to share with you. Please. Okay, so uh, one time we were we were helping a client uh, understand mobile and mobile games and stuff like that. So we went to a family in China, and the couple tells us that what they do is they sell buns uh, as a business. She says uh, every day she she gets one thousand RMB as um, income, right, from, from one of her stores, right? And then and then you'd be like, oh, 1,000 RMB would be, like, how much? 150 uh, in, bucks. In U.S. dollars. Yeah, 150 bucks. And you're like, oh, that's so little, right? And then the next sentence she said is she has 60 stores all over China. <laughs> and, then, and then you do the math and you're like, oh, my God, this is over $10 million business, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the scale of China is just unimaginable. And and also that couple, it's really funny. They 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 play video games like night and day. Hmm. Uh and they would spend like 400,000 RMB per per year 
on virtual games, like virtual tools, right? Like virtual guns and all that. Wow. <laughs> so, like in-game purchases. In-game purchases, right? Like that's why maybe Tencent is making so much money, right? Oh, probably. Um, yeah. You you mentioned in the book that that China is definitely, or you you surmise, you know, part of it, a theme is that China is moving away from being the world's factory of copycats to becoming a world leader in innovation. Can you maybe just speak to that or give some, some examples of, uh, you know, even just talking about, okay, where did this reputation of being a, a country of copycats come from? Um, but how have they been able to move past it so quickly and maybe a demonstration of how they're actually not copycatting, but actually innovating? I would say, depending on how you define innovation, though. Good point. Uh, I think China is very good at micro innovations and refining something that already exists very fast. But in terms of like fundamental innovation, I still think, you know, U- U.S. companies have an edge and it has to do with education, right? Um, and, and culture. I, I think, you know, in, in the early days, a lot of Chinese companies basically, you know, copied over models, business models from the U.S., right? And they are able to scale very fast and run very fast because the market is just five times bigger, right? So they just have to kind of plop the model over and refine it, basically. And sometimes it has evolved way beyond the original version, right? So in, in the early days, like there was uh, WhatsApp and then WeChat. And originally WeChat was just a messaging app, right? But then it became like there was moments and that's like Facebook. And then there's payments, right? And there's like, you can see your doctor, <laughs> like you can do everything on WeChat now. And it looks nothing like WhatsApp. Right. So it has definitely you know, moved a long way. But I think in terms of innovation, uh, you do need let people think freely. Uh, I do think because I, I was also educated in the U.S. Right. In, in university. And uh, I, I was pretty shocked when I went to the U.S. that my professors will ask me what I think. Like in Asia, you never you never get elderly people or professors asking what you think. Because you're always the person who only listens to old people, right? Older people. So I think uh, cultural diversity and also um, a flat, a more relatively flat working hierarchy is uh, more conducive to innovation. Because not not all ideas can come from the top, right? It has to come from the bottom. And also have a system where you reward innovation and reward the protection of IP. Right. So that, that's my view. Right. So I, I, I do think that uh, if China needs to be leading the world in innovation, uh, something's got to change. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Because I think everybody looks at China as the place to pay attention to. I know that's why a lot of people listen to this podcast as well, is that China is the place to pay attention to if you want to see the future. If you want to see the future, go to China. Uh, would you agree with that? Um, I would say in certain things, yes, like um, e-commerce and mobile payment. Yes, China can implement it much faster because there's not so much concern about privacy mm. and because it's very top top down, right? Mm-hmm. And certain companies are m- much bigger, like allowed to be big, right? Like the BATs are allowed to be big, mm-hmm. right? By the government. So they can do that. So I would say like in terms of businesses, especially small businesses, sometimes it's a little more unpredictable in terms of the business environment. About your book, Experience Innovation. Tell us anything else that you think everybody needs to know, especially where to find it, where to buy it, where to listen. Okay. Yeah, actually, you can go to my website. It's uh, www.elaine-ann.com and you can buy my book from there. And uh, I think I highlight um, how China is different. It's a very fast-paced market. The culture is different. The business environment is different. So um, I had a conversation with another friend where I think we pretty much agree. Like China is almost like a it could be a huge gold pot at the end, but mm-hmm. there would be crocodiles and <laughs> snakes in the middle and you need to, 
need to be able to hop through that to get to the goal part of my mine. So I think like certain companies have done it and able to do it. Like for example, Dyson did really well, right? Mm-hmm. I think China made Dyson the richest person in the UK. <laughs> And of course, because they are a, a lead innovator in their product category, uh, I don't think they had to adjust so much because they, they do have the branding. So I think knowing how you are differentiated uh, in the China market is important. Uh, for every single product category, there are so many competitors, like especially low-end products, right? Even sanitary napkins have like a few hundred brands in China. Like, how do you differentiate yourself, right? Yeah. Even vacuum cleaners, like for our clients, there are many, many cheap versions of it, right? So you you really need to know, like, why should Chinese consumers pay three to four times or sometimes even eight times the price of something made locally for that? But of course, um, in certain product categories, if they believe that your product is way more superior superior, and it's way more safe. It's way more trustable. People are willing to pay. And because the market is so big, uh, we, we call it the, uh, the mass affluent people, which is uh, 400 million people in China. That's bigger than the U.S. market already, right? U.S. is uh, 230 million, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So China just has the size, right? So, so you just have to focus on a niche area that that you're good at especially for smaller companies and plus uh recently there's this whole trend about live streaming right Mm -hmm. like a for example a fashion store can be sitting in new york not move a single finger (laughs) not fly to china but you can live stream your product and chinese consumers will be buying in china from their mobile phone from a store that is in new york that's amazing. Right. And that's that's something interesting to think about. <laughs> okay. Well, any last tips or advices for any of our companies or brands that are looking to go to China? Um, well, definitely I think it's do your due diligence. I, I don't think you have to be overly worried if you find the right partners to work with and even build the right teams, right? I think where it falls short is not building the right team. So I think ha- having the right talent. Especially, I think Western companies need to know that there are many types of Chinese also. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, there are mainland Chinese, there's Hong Kong Chinese, there's Singapore Chinese, there's Taiwanese Chinese, there's uh, American-born Chinese. So just even knowing that difference is important because you might be hiring the wrong people uh, for that market, right? Is hiring a little bit different? I mean, a, can you can you take the same hiring strategy from from how you built your your Western team to and, and then take it over there and be kind of putting it through the same? Oh no, no, definitely not. <laughs> we 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 had a client, um, a Western client in China, who told us that when he first landed China, he was in Beijing. Uh, he's a lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. And the U.S. way of dealing with hiring and firing is uh, you fire people immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then what ended up happening was um, like the people in China who got fired, the whole village came and surrounded his company building for a whole week. And he called the police and the police was like, well, this is none of our business. It's between you and your employees. <laughs> so he wasn't able to go home for a whole week. Wow. <laughs> you know, like it's a huge cultural difference, right? I think people in China don't see our uh, relationship as contractual. People see relationship as long-term things, right? Uh, which number one takes a lot more time to build the trust. And once you build the trust, it's almost like it's for life, right? Um, whereas I think U.S. business is very transactional, <laughs> Even when we do research, right? I think the U.S. version is you go in, you do the research, buy, then you never see the user again, right? And this transactional way of working doesn't like rub people that well. (laughs) In China, especially, even if you have money, you might not be able to find the right user. I think that's why our business also exists is because... People don't trust organizations. People trust friends and family. And that's a huge difference. Which would make it a lot harder to find product market fit accurately. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can't just say, 
uh, I'm Google, <laughs> sign up for this because they might be like, like people in China might be like, number one, I don't even know if you're the real Google because it could be fake, right? <laughs> so they only trust it if it's referred from a friend or family member. And that would obviously impact buying decision pathology, really. Oh, actually, buying in China is also amazing. Like we've seen group buys for even refrigerators, right? <laughs> like people will be living in a complex, and then you know they will know their neighbors, and they'll go to a neighbor's home and see, oh, you have a Samsung fridge, it's really good. Oh, why don't we gather a bunch of people from the vicinity to to do a group buy? <laughs> uh, we've even seen car companies parked at like next to like downstairs where. Where the elderly people uh, would mingle with their grandkids, so they basically bring the car to where they live, right? <laughs> Instead of asking people to go to the car showroom, so they bring the car to these housing complexes, and then when the when the the grandparents sees it, they will go home and tell their sons who are in their maybe twenty or thirties to go buy the car. So the marketing strategy is all really different, I think. Yeah, doing advertising in China, like if you have a lot of money, it might work. But if you don't have a lot of money, like because the market is so big, like just like spending money is like like a drop of water in an ocean, right? So having the right strategy will be really important. Well, Elaine and founder and director of Kaiser Innovation, thank you very very much for being on the show today. Thanks, Todd. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market, exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at wpic.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.